Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. We are continuing our series through the book of Exodus, which tells the story of Israel's divinely orchestrated deliverance from slavery for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom amidst the nations. The Exodus reveals for all God's people, both then and now, what it means to be redeemed by God, what it means to worship Him and serve Him. So, as we've said, the Exodus is our story. This is the history of God's people, and the Exodus was written for our instruction. We are invited by the Bible to apply the narrative directly to our lives. By way of reminder, the God of the Exodus has a name, Yahweh. Every time His name is used, the English translators have replaced the name Yahweh with the title Lord. And I think we lose something when we do that. And so throughout our time today, I will be using the name Yahweh in place of Lord because I don't want us to miss out on the intimate nature of God's relationship with His children. Yahweh is not a distant politician living in Washington, D.C. and passing down rules for His constituents to follow. Yahweh is a good father who draws near to His children to teach them how to live and grow and thrive in His world. Last week, we covered the Ten Words, which we commonly call the Ten Commandments. And following the Ten Words, there's a list of ordinances spanning from chapter 21 to chapter 23. And the ordinances cover all sorts of things. Whatever else we might say about them, the ordinances were designed to form the people of Israel into a holy nation, a nation distinct from every other nation at the time. This was precisely God's intent. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people respond in verse 8, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Immediately following this, the ten words are given along with the ordinances. With these ordinances, again, Yahweh is forming the people of Israel into a holy nation, a nation distinct from every other nation at the time. But what about the kingdom of priests? The ordinances would make them into a holy nation, but in order to serve Yahweh as a kingdom of priests, they would need a temple and a sacrificial system. So that's the context of Exodus 24. The people of Israel have what they need to be a holy nation, but the people of Israel lack what they need to be a kingdom of priests. Chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that Yahweh has spoken we will do. Notice, that's exactly how they respond in chapter 19. So that's clue number one, that what follows is going to continue the process of formation for the people of Israel. In particular, what follows is going to consecrate the nation of Israel into a kingdom of priests. To consecrate is to set apart someone or something as holy or sacred. To set apart someone or something for a divine purpose. And in the Bible, consecration is often accomplished through some sort of ritual sprinkling, whether water, oil, or in this case, blood. 
All right? Verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw, the word there is sprinkled, against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, here it is again, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, there's a lot going on there. First, Moses builds an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai. Altars are for sacrifice. Second, Moses builds 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Third, Moses commissions young men to sacrifice oxen. Fourth, Moses separates the blood. Fifth, he sprinkles half of the blood on the altar. Sixth, he reads the book of the covenant. That's the 10 words and the ordinances. And then seventh, Moses sprinkles the blood upon the people. More than likely, I think he sprinkled the blood on the 12 pillars representing the people. But by sprinkling half the blood on the altar and half the blood on the people, Moses is symbolically binding the people to the altar. He is consecrating the altar as a place of sacrifice, and he's consecrating the people as sacrificers. But he is also consecrating the relationship between the two. The people of Israel will be a people of the altar, which is to say that the people of Israel will be a kingdom of priests. Now, following this chapter... Moses is given instructions on how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable temple during Israel's time in the wilderness. It was the dwelling place of Yahweh. So having consecrated the people into a kingdom of priests, Yahweh gives Moses detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And the how is incredibly important especially if we're going to understand what's happening here in chapter 24. Moses is repeatedly told to build the tabernacle according to the pattern he was shown on the mountain. According to the pattern he was shown on the mountain. It's as if Moses spends 40 days at the top of Mount Sinai reviewing blueprints for the tabernacle. But there's another dimension to that. Moses wasn't just given blueprints for the tabernacle, Mount Sinai was itself a blueprint of the tabernacle. And if that's true, then we should be able to look ahead to the construction of the tabernacle and learn something about what's happening here at the mountain. Does that make sense? If, if Mount Sinai was itself a blueprint for the tabernacle, then we can look ahead to the construction of it and learn something about what's happening here. So here's what we need to know about the tabernacle. I've got some slides for you. The tabernacle had three distinct zones of holiness. The outer court was holy, the holy place was holier, and the most holy place was holiest. The outer court was open to all of Israel, the holy place was open to the priests, and the most holy place only to the high priest. So as you moved through the tabernacle, things got more and more holy, and the zones became more and more restrictive. 
That's exactly what we see here in chapter 24. The people of Israel are waiting at the base of the mountain, the outer court. The 75 priests and elders are waiting halfway up the mountain, the holy place. But Moses and only Moses is called into the most holy place at the peak of the mountain. In the tabernacle, the outer court was where the altar was located and sacrifices were made. The holy place was where the priests ate bread with Yahweh, and the most holy place was where God's presence dwelt, and the two stone tablets were stored. Okay? With all that in mind, let's keep reading. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So, Moses and 74 Israelites began making their way up Mount Sinai. Back in verse 1 of chapter 24, Yahweh delivers a call to worship. Come up here and worship me. And now, having covered themselves in the blood of a sacrifice, they ascend into a holier zone. They have drawn nearer to Yahweh, but they are still worshiping from a distance. These 75 people are permitted to behold God and to eat and drink in His presence. They partake of a communion meal with Yahweh. The sequence is strikingly similar to our liturgy, isn't it? We respond to a call to worship. We trust in the blood of Christ as we ascend into God's presence. We worship there, we hear his word spoken over us, and we enjoy a communion meal with him. And yet, there are differences, and those differences are incredibly important. But we'll get to that in a bit. Verse 12, Yahweh said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Once again, the people of Israel were waiting at the base of the mountain near the altar representing the outer court of the tabernacle. The priests and elders were waiting halfway up the mountain where the communion meal had been shared representing the holy place of the tabernacle. But Moses, the prophet and high priest of Israel, ascended to the very top of the mountain and into the presence of Yahweh where the law is written on stone tablets. Moses enters into the most holy place. Now, jump to verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you, you may have noticed that chapter 24 features a lot of numbers. We have the number 12, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, says that explicitly. We have six days and a seventh day, that's creation language. We have 40 days and 40 nights, that's new creation language. But what I want to talk about is the number 70. We see the number 70 in verse 1 and again in verse 9. Yahweh commands Moses to ascend the mountain along with 70 of the elders. Not all the elders, 
specifically 70 of them. The number 70 has a lot to say about Israel's vocation as a kingdom of priests, and by extension, it has a lot to say about the church. So why 70? Well, as Dodds mentioned two weeks ago, the number 70 is a biblical number representing the the nations of the earth. That doesn't mean that there are 70 nations on the planet today. That's obviously not the case. But the Bible uses the number 70 to represent the nations. So when 70 elders are invited to share a meal with Yahweh, this is a reminder of Israel's vocation on behalf of those nations. All nations are invited to feast with Yahweh. The holy nation of Israel, which has just been consecrated into a kingdom of priests, is called to mediate a relationship between Yahweh and the, and the rest of the nations. Yahweh's kingdom of priests are called to live in a holy manner before the 70 nations. Yahweh's kingdom of priests are called to make sacrifices on behalf of the 70 nations. Yahweh's kingdom of priests are called to build a house of prayer for the 70 nations. And the purpose of all of that will be the salvation and redemption of the 70 nations. In the end, all nations are invited to feast with Yahweh. From the beginning, that was Yahweh's purpose for His holy nation and kingdom of priests. Worship me and obey me, and then through you, I will redeem the whole world. But the people of Israel were unfaithful. Yahweh was Israel's father. Israel was Yahweh's son. But Israel was a rebellious son. The nations depended upon Israel for redemption. They they depended upon the son of Yahweh, but the son of Yahweh was rebellious. How will the nations know Yahweh if Yahweh's son is rebellious? They won't. Yahweh needs a faithful son. And the faithful son is Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is the true Israel and the only begotten son of God. He was faithful in every way that Israel was not. Jesus comes to recover Israel's vocation as a holy nation and kingdom of priests. He comes not to defeat the nations, but to serve the nations. He comes to disciple the nations, to baptize the nations, to teach the nations to obey Yahweh. Jesus is sacrificed to once again consecrate His people. We are sprinkled with His blood. We are invited to ascend into the presence of God. We worship Him, we hear His words spoken over us, and we feast with Him. And rather than worshiping from a distance, we are commanded to draw near. The victory of Jesus has torn the curtain in two. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. The curtain in the temple that divided the holy place from the most holy place has been torn in two, giving all God's people access to the most holy place. It's not just Moses anymore. We are all summoned into the glory cloud at the peak of Mount Sinai. 
And with that, the Holy Spirit has written the law upon our hearts. The law that was once inscribed upon tablets of stone has now been inscribed upon our innermost being. God's law is now stored in us, which makes each of us individually a tabernacle and makes us all together one tabernacle. The church is the dwelling place of Yahweh. It's where, it's where the nations come to know the God of Israel. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I truly hope you find this astonishing. I truly hope you find this astonishing because we are privileged in Christ beyond the wildest dreams of the ancient Israelite. The blood of Jesus gives us greater access to Yahweh than anyone could have imagined. And so we do not neglect to meet together because corporate worship on the Lord's Day is our weekly opportunity to ascend the mountain of God together. We hear His call to worship. We renew our trust in the sacrificial blood of His Son. We sing to Him. We hear from His Word. We ascend into His presence. We feast with Him. And then He sends us back down the mountain because there are nations who still don't know Him. We are the kingdom of priests. We are called to mediate a relationship between Yahweh and everyone and everything in need of redemption. So, here's a question. Do you often think of yourself as a priest? Do you often think of yourself as a servant in the temple of Yahweh? No, probably not. It's kind of a strange thought, right? But it's true. And it's true whether or not you feel worthy of that vocation or fully equipped for that vocation. It's true of you now. So in, in light of that, I think it's helpful for us to double back and consider who exactly climbed Mount Sinai. Of the 75 Israelites on Mount Sinai, Joshua was the only one who was eventually permitted to enter into the promised land. Not Moses, not Aaron, not Nadab or Abihu or any of the 70 elders. Now that, that doesn't mean they were cut off from the covenant or from the grace of God, but they each failed in some way. And that raises an important question for us as a kingdom of priests why does God operate and communicate through fallible human beings? 
Within the narrative of Scripture, the failure of human beings serves to build the tension toward Jesus, who in the end succeeds. But, but even after Jesus, God still operates and communicates through fallible human beings. Why? I have three reasons. Number one, the triune God is a social being, and we are made in His image. We are social beings. And so by operating and communicating through us, God is operating and communicating in accordance with the way He designed us to work. We live in community and we learn in community. Number two, until very recently in world history, most fathers would teach the family trade to their sons. And in the process, like any good teacher, a father may test his son by giving him something difficult as a learning opportunity. Well, in the same manner, Yahweh allows his children to try and, and even to fail in order to learn and to grow. Israel's time in the wilderness was not just for punishment. It was also for maturation. And the same goes for the church. Through the ups and downs of church history, we have to believe that Yahweh is maturing His children. Number three, humanity's original calling in the Garden of Eden was to rule the world wisely and justly under the authority of Yahweh. Adam and Eve were given dominion over everything God had created. And so by operating and communicating through fallible human beings, God is graciously restoring us to our original vocation. We have the privilege of participating in His global redemption plan. We are priests, and we are kings and queens again. So, I'm a fallible preacher, sorry about that, but you are a fallible witness in the workplace. You are a fallible disciple maker in your home. God doesn't need me to preach this sermon. He doesn't need you to reach your coworkers. He doesn't need you to disciple your children. He could communicate His Word directly, and sometimes He does that. But his ordinary means is to use you and me. His ordinary means is to restore us to our original vocation as those who have dominion. That's an incredible privilege. It's also an incredible responsibility. As consecrated priests, who have been granted access to the most holy place and who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. We listen to our Heavenly Father and we obey every word He has spoken. We try and we fail and we learn from our failures. We get equipped in order to minister to others. We mature into spiritual adulthood. We learn to feed ourselves so that we can learn to feed others. We stir one another up to love and good works. We meet together regularly. And we walk in the footsteps of the faithful Son of God. We are a kingdom of priests. We are the sons of God. 
And all of creation is waiting with eager longing for us to take hold of that vocation. So ask yourself what it might look like for you to live more fully into your identity and your vocation as a priest in this kingdom. And speaking on behalf of your pastors, we, we would love to help you process through what that might mean for you. Email us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a good Heavenly Father, for drawing near to your children to teach us and to mature us into your image. Jesus, we thank you for your blood, the blood by which we are consecrated and the blood through which we have gained access to the most holy place. It is astonishing. Holy Spirit, thank you for dwelling with us, for inscribing the law upon our hearts. We ask that you would help us help us to live into our identity as your kingdom of priests. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.